invite you, if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. And this morning, the words to which I would call your attention are found in verses 1 through 8, Matthew chapter 9. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Let's give attention to it now. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. Please pray with me. Lord Most High, we bless and praise your name. We ask you, please, to cause these words to live in our hearts. Help us to derive hope from them. For the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. You know, what the world and many of you need this morning is hope. There are, if you read the Drudge Report like I do, you scroll down and it seems like they choose the articles to feature there that uh, will bring you the most dismay, that will cause you to become the most disheartened, that will remind you how each and every day the world is crumbling and falling apart. And so we're looking, we turn to certain news sources and we're looking for a place to find hope. I need something to lift me up, not showing me that the divides in the United States of America are growing deeper. How do we give the world hope? What is is the one thing that you have to offer hope to the world in this situation, this circumstance? How do you do that? Politicians often run on a platform of hope. They stand before you and they promise that they're going to strengthen the dollar and pave the roads, get rid of litter. They're going to fix the immigration situation. They're going to attain energy independence. And we get to hear this every four years. Same promises over and over again. Imagine a president, if you will, who accomplished all of those things. Suddenly, we found out in the first hundred days, the roads were paved. Unemployment was going down, the dollar was strengthened, the trade deficit was declining. Would you be hopeful? Well, maybe for a little bit, and then you'd have a cardiac arrest. You'd have a stroke. Someone would run you over and you'd break your leg. You would not chew your hot dog up all the way and you would choke. And you'd have to go to the emergency room. And then suddenly, all that hope was taken away because you're reminded how frail your body is. 
And that no matter how many roads are paved, ultimately an ambulance is going to drive over those roads to carry you someplace or maybe a hearse. No president has ever promised to solve death. I didn't go back to Ross Perot's death, maybe, or Ross Perot's speeches, maybe he did. Um, But there is one who has solved death. There is one who has taken away your greatest enemy. And he walked upon this earth to give you a hope that will not disappoint. Not paved roads, not a fixed immigration system, not a Supreme Court that rules always in a conservative way that looks to the Constitution. All those things will fade. And when all those things will fade, those things fade, his promises to you will remain. And we reflect this morning as we look to this text that for his own glory, God gave the incarnate Christ authority to forgive the sins of men. As we look at this passage, remember we notice in verse 1 that Jesus got into a boat and crossed over and came to his own city. Remember he's on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. He was attempting, as it were, to minister to the Gadarene people. He gave them a sign of his immense power by driving demons out and restoring this man, and they greeted him how? You ruined our economy. Go back to where you came from. Well, he did. He did go back to where he came from. And he took all of his mercy with him. He got into a boat and he crossed over and he came back to the city that was his own city. Where was that? Well, it's this little place called Capernaum. And remember, it's situated there just on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. This is where Peter's house was, where James and John uh, had their home, where Jesus had healed um, the centurion's daughter or child, or or, uh, as it were, uh, the place where he healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law. He went back there. And what happened? Well, the people gathered around him. Again, when Mark reflects on this scene, he tells us that this was a packed house. And we, we know Jesus was sitting there. And the people were coming to him because they had uh, various needs. And we know from Mark's account that suddenly in the midst of all these people some of the dirt began to fall down from the ceiling up above and men were cutting through the ceiling so that they could let their friend down before Christ so that he could be treated and healed. And as we look at this scene of the way that Jesus deals with this paralytic man, the way that Jesus dealt with the men whose hearts perhaps were paralyzed, one thing comes before us That Christ was ordained and authorized to give forgiveness to men. The first thing that we see in verses 1 to 2 is that Jesus forgives the faithful. 
Jesus forgives the faithful. Notice how Matthew brings this out. He, he sort of dismisses all that Mark paid attention to. We don't see the man coming down through the ceiling. None of that's necessary for us. Uh, Matthew focuses, as it were, on the bare essentials in verse 2. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. The first thing that we notice about this is interesting. Jesus sees their faith. Have you ever seen someone's faith? In this moment, Matthew highlights for us Christ's divinity, his divine nature. That you and I know that God alone has the power to see a man's heart, to look upon his heart. It is God alone who can see your motivations. He doesn't just judge you by the outward appearance. He sees why you do the things that you do. And so here it is important as we reflect on Christ's person, as we think about who the incarnate Christ was, we remember that it was not appropriate to attribute divine attributes to the human Christ. Jesus, as a man, perfect though He was, without sin, did not have the ability to look at a man's heart and see His motivation. And Matthew is, is here bringing forward for you the fact that he possessed not one nature like you, but two natures. A divine nature and a human nature. Well, how do we know that he had a divine nature? Because he could see their faith. Christ, as the God-man, is truly divine. As we think about this, you recognize that your heart is like a movie screen before the Lord Jesus Christ. He can see every scene, every detail. The thoughts and intentions of your heart are plainly visible to Him. Well, well Christ, in His divinity, what does He look upon these men and see? He looks upon them and He sees their faith. They came to Him believing that He could help them Christ cannot be fooled by outward manifestations of faith. He is a perfect judge. He cannot be fooled by outward manifestations of faith. But we also see that Christ acknowledges even the smallest uh, glimmers of faith in a man. He cannot be fooled by hypocritical faith, but he sees even the smallest glimmers of faith. He sees the heart of faith. And what does he do? When Christ sees those who come to him in faith, he reaches out to comfort them. Notice what Jesus said. He gives a word of comfort. Take heart. Literally says here, my child. He, he addresses him as a superior to an inferior Take heart, my child. Now, we might look at those words, take heart. Literally, it is take courage. And, and your mind perhaps would go back to those disciples who on the Sea of Galilee, amongst the swelling waves, were terrified. And Jesus looked at them and He said, why are you cowards? But Jesus isn't addressing a soldier. 
He's not addressing His words as a commander saying, buck up! Here, Christ's intention is to warm the heart of this man. We don't know how long he had been paralyzed. We don't know how long he had been unable to work and support his family. How long he had been dependent on others just to get him from one place to another. Maybe even to feed him. But you see, as Jesus looks at this man, he knows his desperate need and he tells him to take courage And what is the basis of that courage? Notice his next words. Your sins are forgiven. Here we reflect on the very reason for Christ's incarnation. Remember Mary in her Magnificat in Matthew chapter 2. Remembered that her son would come to save his people from their sins. And here, fulfilling this role, Christ pronounced forgiveness to this man and To forgive sins, it means to to set something aside, not to remember it anymore. Uh, In real estate, there is such a thing as a quit claim deed. And if you want to transfer property from one person to another, the very simplest way to do that is to to sign over a quit claim deed and give it to them to say, I don't uh, take any interest in this property anymore. I transfer it to the other person. When God forgives your sins, He is announcing to you that He chooses to take no interest in them anymore. Not to hold them against you anymore. And this is the pronouncement that Christ makes to this man. Now here's an important aspect of this story, I think. It could have ended here. Think about that for just a second. These men lowered their friend down so that he would be relieved of his paralysis and what Jesus gave him was forgiveness of sins. Should that have been sufficient to sustain that man to the day of his death? Jesus is telling you that it should. His courage would not come. His ability to endure the hardship in life would not come from the possibility of being redeemed from his physical malady. His courage comes from the fact that God has forgiven him for his sins. How can we apply this? Well, perhaps you have friends who, are, who have a disability of some sort. Maybe you do. How do you minister to them? How do you minister to someone who has received bad news? You're going to be laid off from your job. How do you minister to people who are facing an economy uh, like ours and rising gas prices? How do you minister to them? What do you say? Well, what did Christ say? I I can't fix your disability. I can't fix that. I don't have the words for that. But what I can tell you is that if you come to Christ... He will forgive your sins. Remember, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but Lazarus would die again. Jesus would heal this paralyzed man, but he would die. Jesus did many wonderful things for many people, 
But all of those people at the end of their days would face the end of their days. And what was it that would sustain them through that? The realization that God would not hold their sins against them. That is the hope of man. Well, not everybody sees this as a hopeful thing, apparently. Because now Matthew records for us a couple of responses to Jesus' forgiveness. And the second thing that we notice here is that Jesus confronts the wicked in verses 3 to 6. Not only did Jesus forgive the faithful, but he confronted the wicked. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Again, Matthew drawing attention to Christ in his divinity. Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk, but so that you, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins The first thing we see here is that some of the scribes were saying this amongst themselves. Already, Christ's teaching was was causing division among those. It's not all of the scribes. Remember, just a few verses ago, one of the, the scribes came up to Jesus and said, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, well, the Son of Man doesn't have a place to to lay his head. I don't have a place to lead you. Some of the scribes, on the other hand, are questioning Jesus' words. They are accusing him of sin. This man is blaspheming, they notice. Now, one thing you have to understand is the idea of forgiveness is not new. It's not a New Testament development. It's not something that came along just because of Christ in His incarnation. But God has shown His people the way of forgiveness all through the new covenant, the covenant of grace. What they're accusing Christ of, therefore is that he is usurping God's authority. And so now you're starting to see how all these little notes that Matthew gives you come together. Well, he has the divine nature. He is God incarnate. God joined to a human nature. But Jesus sees their wicked hearts and he confronts their unbelief. Notice that he did that in two ways. He confronted their unbelief in two ways. The first of all was with reason, and then the second was with a sign. With reason and with a sign. Now, you'll remember that the opposition to the gospel has come in two ways primarily. Remember that Paul reflected in 1 Corinthians, he said, the Jews demand what? A sign, and the Greeks demand wisdom. Well, here Jesus confronts them both. First, he gives them reason. He asks them why, and then he asks them which. Why do you think evil things in your hearts? Perhaps another way to put this is, why are your hearts filled with evil? Why is it your inclination against me is to assume evil? Why don't you have an inclination to assume the best? Why is it not your question, well, why aren't you asking me, how do you have the authority to do this? Instead, they assume that his ways are are evil. To think in such a way about Christ is wickedness. I think Jesus is asking them to consider what is the cause? Where is this coming from? 
Why is this the inclination of your hearts? We think back to Genesis 6, 5, when God said that the heart of man was full of all kinds of wickedness. The inclination of his heart is wicked, only wicked all the time. Jesus is asking them to consider that. Then he says to them, uh, reasoning with them again, which is easier? Now, you've witnessed my ministry. You've witnessed me cast out demons. This certainly isn't the first paralytic that I've heard. I've caused a fevered woman to rise again. They've been instantaneously healed. Why is all of that possible? Which of those things is easier for me to command diseases to leave or to forgive sins? Here, Christ reveals the wickedness that lies upon our hearts. It cannot reason properly. If these men were not so beset by their sins, if their hearts were not already corrupted, do you see, they could have observed everything that Jesus was doing and come to the proper conclusion. There's only one who can do these things. Only one who has authority over diseases and illness and the seas. Who is it? God. Jesus exposes that not only is faith in the heart, but also unbelief. So that not even reason can appeal to a man's sinful and fallen heart. And so now he proceeds to give them a sign. Notice what he says. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He healed the man. I think one thing in particular we should focus on here. It is this phrase, so that you may know. This phrase occurs 15 times in the book of Ezekiel. I'm sorry, in the book of Exodus. And it occurs 76 times in the book of Ezekiel. And every time that the Lord utters this phrase, so that you may know, I am the Lord, He is referring to a sign He would would perform and the effect that it would have upon His people. Let me give you a couple of quotations here. This is from Exodus 6-7. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you from, with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And here it is. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians in Exodus 7.5. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So you know that, that God is doing these great and awesome acts in the midst of the people. And what's happening? Well, on the one hand, Moses' heart was strengthened. Moses finally would say, I know. 
and he would trust in the Lord. But on the other hand, what happened to Pharaoh? His heart was hardened. He was strengthened in his unbelief. Similar things in Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel 5.13. Thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself. And they shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them. Ezekiel 39.21-22. And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord, their God, from that day forward. What's happening here when Jesus said, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He is reflecting upon all of these pronouncements of God and saying the same thing. This is sort of like John in the seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. Jesus is demonstrating. He is putting himself in the place of God. He is working this work to show them his power. But is it a work of compassion? Or is it a work of judgment? Miracles do not generate the faith that the paralytic's friends had. You remember Lazarus and the rich man? Lazarus would lay day by day at the rich man's gate. And finally, he, he, they both died. And, and, and Lazarus went to the bosom of Abraham and the rich man was consigned to hell. You remember the rich man's request? Just let Lazarus come back from the dead and preach to my brothers so that they can be saved. They'll see that he has come back from the dead and they'll believe. Remember Abraham's response? They have the law and the prophets. Let them listen to them. When I was first converted and really uh, zealous without wisdom in my early conversion and wanted to win everyone to Christ, still do, one of the things that we sometimes reflected on is we said, well, man, if, if a celebrity was converted to Christ, we would have this amazing testimony and everybody would take Christianity seriously then. Or maybe we would think, if we just had a Christian president, everybody would suddenly take Christianity seriously then. We just need some amazing sign. Well, here Jesus gives a sign. And I don't think it's a sign that was of compassion. I think what Jesus is doing is he is showing us that even when he would heal this paralytic man, these men still would not believe that he had come from God. As we think about this, what, what is it pointing us to then? It's pointing us to his words. We are to trust in his words. That those who studied the scriptures most closely were blind to Christ. Some were hardened by it, and others were softened, all in the sovereign plan of God. Now, let's notice a third, third thing here quickly. 
Jesus forgave the faithful, he confronted the wicked, and then he restores the reconciled. Notice that Jesus now, he turns his attention to the paralytic man. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And what does he do? He rose and went home. I think very simply here, no one who has received Christ's forgiveness leaves the way that he came. Nobody who knows Christ's forgiveness through faith leaves the way that he came. Every life that has been affected by Christ's forgiveness is affected in an outward and a visible and a tangible way. This is a picture in some sense of the already and the not yet as well of Christ's kingdom. That everyone who comes in faith to Christ receives forgiveness in this life and that everyone who comes in faith to Christ will ultimately be made whole. One is for this life to give you hope in this life and one is a promise for the life to come. You in this life, every single one of you can know the promise and the proclamation of Christ in this life that your sins are forgiven. And listen, everyone who hears those words and believes them in this life will know what Christ did to the paralytic in the life to come. You will be made whole. Every one of your infirmities, every one of your sorrows will be erased. Christ restores the reconciled. And then lastly, Christ brings glory to God. Look at verse 8. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. The people feared God. That's kind of an odd response, isn't it? Why would the people, seeing what Christ did, fear the Lord? Well, let, me, let me invite you to turn with me, first of all, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 8. First Kings chapter 8, verse 39. Then, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive, and act, and render to each whose heart you know, according to all his ways, for you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. You see all of these themes coming through in Matthew 9 so that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. Let me ask you now to turn to Psalm 130. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, 
so that you may be feared. You see, this is the natural result. Where the forgiveness of God has been known by a people, it will be marked by two things, fear and worship. As we go back to Matthew 9, what do we find? How did the people respond? They feared God. The crowd saw it. They were afraid. They feared Him. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. They sang, in this moment, they sang a doxology to the Lord. Note the stark contrast. In, in the, when Christ was on the eastern shore with the Gadarenes, He showed His mercy to them. And what did they do? They responded by reviling Him and sending Him away. But the Galileans worshipped Him. And you should know that it is God's purpose to glorify His name through all of His actions. They did not add to His glory. They simply acknowledged His glory which was manifested to them through His mercy. This is the reason that God offers you His forgiveness even this morning. So that you would be a person who lives your life faithfully fearing the Lord and gathering with His people to glorify Him all the days of your life. For His own glory, God gave the incarnate Christ the authority to forgive the sins of men. He gave Him this authority. He gave Him the authority to announce forgiveness to you. To announce it. To proclaim it to those who come in faith. He, was not give, he has not given this authority to any other, not princes, not popes, but to Christ alone and those who come in His name. And so just a moment ago, when we confessed our sin in prayer, I proclaim to you forgiveness of sins, not because I have that authority of myself, but because Christ has given it. The truly forgiven display that forgiveness in worship to God. It becomes your great desire. You've been reconciled. You cannot be kept from worship. Truly, the forgiven say with the psalmist, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bless and praise your name that you have made this way possible for us through the Lord Jesus Christ that we might know your forgiveness, the reconciliation through his blood, in whose name we pray, amen.